Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a best-selling author, a speaker, and also a mastermind facilitator. Speaking of which, we are very excited about the 2023 spring cohort that is coming together right now. We do have a few spots left, so if you're listening to this episode as it's released in December of 2022, you're not too late. Go to PattonMcDowell.com to the Mastermind page to find out more. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. Monique Perry Graves, who brings a wonderful career journey to this conversation, both as a higher education administration leader Uh, And then most recently, she has joined Teach for America, North Carolina, as its executive director. Now, those two stops on her professional path gave us lots to discuss as she offers great advice as to how she has brought life experiences to her leadership at every stop along the way and how she manages the independence as well as the association of leading a chapter organization within a national nonprofit like Teach for America. Now, where Monique is especially skilled is in the management of a nonprofit merger, which she has, in fact, overseen as the executive director of Teach for America. And let's face it, if you stay in nonprofit leadership for very long, you will likely encounter some sort of strategic alliance, and Monique's going to help you manage just that. Lots of reasons to check out these show notes for this episode. It's number 187. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources mentioned, as well as more information on Monique and the great work she's doing through Teach for America, North Carolina. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Monique Perry Graves. Monique, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you so much for having me, Pat, and I'm excited about our conversation or continued conversation. Indeed. I'm delighted to continue our conversation because you have had a wonderful leadership journey and offered me wonderful advice as a result of your experience. And so I want to unpack that and share with our listeners some of the lessons you've learned over the course of your career. And the first question I want to ask, because you've made some interesting points when we talked about this. Um, many of our listeners are pondering jumping into nonprofit leadership or maybe jumping from one sector to another. And -hmm. you were clearly on a success path in higher education, but you made the jump to Teach for America. Talk about maybe what was the biggest challenge of making that jump. Yes. Um, So I am a uh, definitely a sector jumper. I have worked in um, the business world early on in my career. And as you mentioned, the majority of my uh, tenure um, has been in higher education before TFA. And so I think what the commonality of that work is what my focus is in my career, and that's about impact. And I think that I've gravitated towards education as being a tenant of that. Um, but one of the things in moving to TFA um, for almost 12 years um, as a community college administrator, I saw students every day. Um, right. I would drive onto a campus and Um, While I was a senior administrator um, at the college level, I started off as a faculty member in the classroom uh, teaching adult learners in early college. Um, But even when I moved into administration, 
uh, because I led enrollment management and what people know of stu as student affairs, um, I wasn't in the president's administration building. I was in the student affairs building. So right. um, I <laughs> drove in the parking lot and when I would walk in the door, I would see students. If I went to the water fountain, <laughs> I saw students. Um, and so that was always a very consistent and present reminder about why I was there and who I was there to serve. And so I, I do miss that, um, even though some of the students didn't even know who I was. Um, right, right. I, I, I do miss that aspect. All right. So then why did you make the jump? Uh, yeah. You had great uh, opportunities, certainly in higher ed, as you mentioned, but I'm curious, why did you yeah. make the jump to TFA? Yeah, well, first and foremost, um, I mentioned the focus on impact. And so um, I had been at uh, my community college uh, for about 12 years in various capacities. Um, our president uh, was retiring um, the president that I had worked under uh, right. entire tenure. Um, and even though I could have stayed, so it was not a situation where I had to go, I felt like it was a good time to kind of see where I could broaden my impact. Um, I already had significant experiences leading in a variety of contexts. And I also had the opportunity to participate in some really um, remarkable leadership development programs to kind of explore um, my leadership. And so I knew I wanted to do something that built on my community college experience, but I wasn't sure what. And so I had a couple of colleagues from the community college space that transitioned to the nonprofit leadership arena, um, but more so to uh, national nonprofits. Uh, one went to go work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. A couple others went to go work for some major foundations. And in having conversations with them, it really just opened my eyes to the leadership opportunities present um, at nonprofits, especially those that might have a national, regional, or network model. Right. So when the TFA opportunity was shared with me, um, I decided to put my name in the hat um, <laughs> and, and the opportunity to um, lead the state um, and lead TFA's um, unifying of its regional affiliates from a regional model to a statewide model was very attractive. And during my tenure at the college, I had led significant change. And so change management was a very strong muscle of mine in leadership. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm going to ask you to elaborate on it because change management seems to me is something every nonprofit leader needs to have in their toolkit. Yes. And you have been a wonderful exemplar of that uh, skill and experience. But for, I feel certain Teach for America is familiar to most, if not all, of our listeners, but maybe you could explain, if they're not, yeah, what is Teach for America? Absolutely. It may be familiar to some, but it's always good to remind. And exactly. To with, exactly. With others. So Teach for America has been in existence for over 30 years. Um, and in North Carolina, where I'm currently located, North Carolina is a founding state, although we have affiliates all across the nation. And so the premise of Teach for America is really based on attracting um, individuals to make a lifetime commitment to education and serving kids through education and a commitment to equity. And the root of that is by us identifying that strong talent and those strong leaders and having them join Teach for America and start by serving two years in the classroom. And so folks join our movement from uh, college. There's individuals that may join our movement that are uh, have graduated from college, but for over 30 years, uh, we've been attracting people to education. And so TFA has over 60,000 plus 
um, alums throughout the nation. I will tell you there is not a job that I've been in that no matter where I go in a professional capacity, even if I'm not going for TFA, that I don't run into or there's some type of connection uh, to someone who knows someone from TFA or an alum. Amazing network, isn't it? Yes. And so the movement is very strong, um, particularly in North Carolina, where I lead. Um, we have a very large alumni base of over 2,200 alumni. Uh, the largest um, kind of subregions of alumni are in Charlotte and the Triangle area. And on average, we bring uh, close to in the low 200s of new educators to the state. Uh, one thing I do like to highlight about Teach for America is a lot of people know us by our model of attracting teachers to the workforce. And while that is the cornerstone of our work, I think one of the things that, that differentiates us is that we pull from a national talent pool. Uh, so when individuals apply to join Teach for America, and it is a competitive process, right. they are applying to join the movement overall and then selecting uh, the affiliate throughout the U.S. that they want to go to. So for us in North Carolina, we are attracting people not just to the education uh, sector, but we are actually attracting people to move to North Carolina, which is a boom for the state as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. And as you said, multiple levels of benefit to the community, to the education system. And as you reminded me, of course, the, the college students that you are recruiting, I guess, or applying, they're not necessarily education majors, right? Not to state no, the obvious. No, they're but... not necessarily education majors. And so we have relationships uh, with universities uh, that provide uh, what we refer to in North Carolina as um, alternative credentials, different states refer to a different race that if someone is not coming out as a traditional education major that allows them to still enter the classroom with our training and support and our coaching, but still achieve those certifications. And so um, that's where the additive piece comes into play um, because our, our statistics show us that there are people that definitely have chosen the field of education that would not have looked at the field of education if not for Teach for America. Yeah, that's remarkable. And I think I mentioned to you, I had a brother my brother Kelly came out of Princeton University and uh, Teach for America was his first step in Houston, yep. Texas, in fact. And, yeah. and so a good example of a non-education major feeling the calling, I guess, as you have, frankly, mm -hmm. to have impact in, around, in and around the field of education. Um, Absolutely. You are a wonderful example of lifelong learning. Uh, a, a, you had leadership development throughout your career. I wonder was there any, you mentioned the community college tenure that you learned and mm -hmm. benefited from. Even go further back, Monique, was there any other yeah. kind of defining moments that kind of pushed you in the path that you're on now? Yeah, I think there's a couple of moments. Um, from a personal perspective, if I go way, way back, even though I'm not that old. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I, um, when I uh, was younger and graduating high school, I had a son as I was graduating my senior year. And really, I come from a family and a lineage um, generationally that has always valued education, even uh, when folks that look like me did not have access to it. It still was a value. Right. Right. And so um, that particular situation for me, while it could have been a, a derailing event, and I did not have some of the circumstances that uh, some others may face in that as far as family support or the economic status of my family, um, there was not really anyone that doubted my potential, even though that happened. Nice. Um, I still graduated from high school on time. I went straight to college at North Carolina Central University. I graduated in four years before some of my friends that had, did not have kids. 
Um, and so I wrote about this recently, uh, a couple months ago in Education and See about how that really is the fire that drives me about education and access to education and opportunity is because no one ever, my teachers never doubted me. Yes. Um, yes. And that that high expectation of you're still going to stay on the track that you were on um, no matter what, in addition to my village of support. Um, and I also met a person of faith as well, um, really buoyed me in a way that probably until recently, I haven't fully reflected upon how much of a springboard that was for me personally. Um, and I was determined to also make sure I had that for my son, because I'm a second generation college student. Um, right. My parents both were college graduates, but my grandfather had an eighth grade education, but put all of his children through college. Wow. Um, that's how important education was. So it's, it's kind of in my DNA. It clearly is. And your self-motivation uh, is a clearly a large part of your success. I, I wonder, were there any other kind of, it sounds like friends, family, teachers, yeah. mentors, any yeah. particular resources or people that, yeah. again, yeah. helped so, you? I would say I I can think of a couple of experience, more formalized experiences that um, contributed to my leadership. There's a, a model from the Center for Creative Leadership that talks about the 70-20-10 um, method of like 70% of your learning is more exposure to things on the job or what I would call the three L's, the look, listen, learn. I had a right, lot of right. leaders early in my career um, whether that was when I was an intern with the Inroads program that was for underrepresented students, I was an intern at SAS Institute in Cary, and you know I would go to meetings where it was like I didn't really know anything what they were talking about, but I was there to look, listen, and learn, and I was exposed to things and environments at a very young age that conditioned me to be comfortable in those environments when it was my turn to be in them. And so opportunities like Inroads, when I first started off, that program is still viable today. It's a national program. Right. But when I went into the community college space, I also had the opportunity to become an Aspen Institute presidential fellow. Um, and that was a one-year program where I had a chance to explore uh, what it would mean to be a community college president. And while I didn't take that ultimate step, um, the skills that I learned are definitely tools and that network that I draw upon today. Yeah, I love that. Well, and again, you've had such wonderful experiences, programs that are, are likely recognizable to our listeners. Um, of course, the Center for Creative Leadership you mentioned, would you mind repeating the 70-20-10 concept? I, I find sure. that fascinating. Talk about that again as a principle. Yeah, yeah. So it's really basically saying that 70% of your learning and development as a leader is on the job or exposure. Um, and so that's through opportunities to be involved in things on the job or actual work that you're doing. Or, you know, what I mentioned, the look, listen, learn or tag along. So there were yep. many times yep. where a leader might say, hey, do you want to go with me to this meeting? Um, and so I wasn't contributing to the meeting. I was just going to the meeting to look, listen and learn, sure. build context. Um, and so then uh, there's another percentage that's based on formal learning. So like formalized training and those kinds of things. And then there's another percentage that relates to coaching, but I can share with you a link to the exact model because I'm probably butchering another part of it. But, uh, but that's the kind of main premise because a lot of times people think a lot of the formalized training is the majority of it. And I don't want to underestimate it. Like I got three degrees, so I, I right. don't right. want to estimate yeah, you that. Appreciate but, that too. but that is not the sole factor. They all contribute. And 
I know for a fact the the exposure and the experience layered on top of training and development opportunities that look different for different people. So what the pathway for one to learn formally is different than others. There's so much out there to take advantage of. Yeah, but a great reminder, you're right, to leaders listening about the formal training indeed has its place, yep. but the, those other elements of experience and things like that uh, help round out our leadership journey in ways that we may not fully appreciate, right? As the one providing or the one receiving that yeah. support. Um, well, let's move into another area of your toolkit. You've been very skilled at change management. And, and of course, your role at North Carolina TFA literally allowed you to uh, exercise that muscle, right? <laughs> in terms of yes. uh, you arrived with two different uh, affiliates, right? The mm-hmm. Charlotte yeah. Piedmont Triad and then mm-hmm. Eastern North Carolina affiliate. But yeah. talk about that. What what did you arrive? What literally was the circumstance of this situation? Yes, I will name that I was very fortunate to be set up for success walking into this role. Um, there were some serendipitous factors such as the footprint, the community footprint of the major communities that both of the affiliates served. Um, I either had lived in, had family in, or had some connection to. So for Eastern North Carolina, uh, those rural areas that start with like Nash and Edgecombe East, um, both sides of my family are from those areas. I visit those areas quite frequently for family. Um, The triangles where I grew up um, and went to undergraduate school, uh, Greensboro is where my son lives. And then obviously I live in Charlotte. So um, I definitely had an advantage in knowing the communities um, just from a general perspective um, and even just the nature of traveling to them. So like a big part of my job is like I'm not just sitting in Charlotte. Right. So even just going up and down the highways and byways, I was very used to uh, doing. Um, But I'll also name that there was a very uh, carefully constructed um, kind of sequencing that was in place by um, my former manager, who's still um, at TFA, uh, Crystal Roundtree, um, as it relates to engaging multiple stakeholders to make the decision to move to a statewide model, um, even though the enterprise, you know, had an inkling to move into that direction, but to also making some of the decisions to activate that, that allowed me to come in and hit the ground running, um, which is not always the case. Um, And sometimes you can't work it out that way. So I'll also name that, like sometimes a leader may want to. um, And so it enabled me to come in with a level of precision um, to make certain decisions that I needed to make to not have to contend with certain aspects of the change. I have led the overwhelming majority of the change but some of the setup for the change that I probably would have had to get to know and engage with the enterprise a little bit more on, she did a fantastic job of laying the groundwork for me. Yeah, and, and nice of you to acknowledge the circumstances that you inherited, right, in terms right. of what, but what literally is or was your charge? Yeah. Uh, and and then maybe we can talk about, you know, the keys to because I think a lot of nonprofit leaders at some point in their career are going to have to manage a merger or some Absolutely. such affiliation. But yeah, again, what was your charge and what do you think helped you do it so effectively? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I had three goals. The top one was activating the statewide model. So really um, making it a reality um, and what that looked like is, you know, unifying the staff, um, continuing to pri- provide leadership to our, we have advisory boards, 
Um, the advisory boards were operated as separate advisory boards. They um, still operate as separate advisory boards. So I have two advisory boards, one for Eastern North Carolina, one for Charlotte Piedmont Triad. Right. Um, to also make sure that our commitment and proximity to our local communities remained unchanged. Um, so the model did not entail staff moving to certain parts of the state. Staff remained um, where they were proximate to the community that they were serving. Um, also engaging in getting to know our alumni, our donor base, and making sure our supporting hitting the fundraising goals. So it can be a challenge in a year of transition and leadership. And you know this from your practice um, as well and, and knowledge base that it doesn't matter how great the leader is or how excited people are about the leader, right. whenever there is a year of transition, uh, that can be a challenge in hitting goals uh, just because you're in that transitional period. Luckily for us, through the partnership um, with our very, very strong development team, we met our goals my transitional year. But wow. that yep. groundwork and relationship and, and networking was critically important. And I had to prepare myself to lend more time in my first six months to the role beyond what you typically would capacity wise to lay that groundwork. But we often don't talk about that. Well, and, and, but I'm glad you you anticipated my question because that you did very well in laying the groundwork, having conversations, listening, because I'm imagining if a nonprofit leader called you from California and said, hey, Monique, I'm, I'm going to I'm about to go through a merger with my organization and other are there certain keys you would say, all right, here's what you need to think about, <laughs> you know, one, yeah. two, three, anything yeah. in particular rise to yeah. the top of that? I would say, you know, you need to build in a couple of things, um, an orientation towards listening, and that's listening to all stakeholders. So um, if you have access to the information that may have been gathered prior that you can pull upon, that's one thing. But I did, at the time, we were dealing with the variant. So kind of like the first round of COVID hit in it, but then the variant had flared back up. So we were still in a state when I started in July of 2021 that a, a lot of people still weren't taking meetings. Some were, but it was not as it's not like it is now. So I embarked on a a, a listening, virtual listening tour, uh, where I engaged and had conversations with multiple stakeholders. I met with every single person on staff, whether they reported to me or not. It took about two months to do that between stakeholder meetings and those. Um, and there were a couple key questions that I would ask, especially our external stakeholders, about what advice would they give me as being the new leader, leading the charge? You know, doesn't mean I'm going to take the advice, but I wanted to to get very perspectives or, you know, what worried them about you know, the the future, you know, yes, of education yes. and, and work. And then, you know, feedback they had. So, you know, I'm coming into leading two separate affiliates that were aligned in mission and impact, but they operated separately. So, you know, are there are things you want me to know or there are things yes. that you want to give us feedback on. And and I think that opened the door uh, to very rich and constructive conversations that allowed me as one leader for a state um, to be able to focus on quality, not quantity, knowing that for certain stakeholders, that might have been the only time I would be meeting with them in those in that six month period. Yeah, so well put. And again, as you suggest, you have to be careful that you don't have predetermined, I guess, conclusions, right? Even though you probably had a sense of what was going on, but you still disciplined yourself to listen and authentically hear, right, what what was going on within both of these organizations. Yes, yes. 
And so you also, as the leader, have to be prepared um, to hear, right? Yeah, right, <laughs> and right, not, right, right. So there would be um, things that maybe a stakeholder might bring up. Um, sometimes it really had nothing to do with Teach for America. Yeah, right, um, but, right. <laughs> but because of the perceived influence of our organization, uh, which is a positive thing, I think one of the things when you embark upon those listening tours, you have to be prepared for people to bring things that really don't align with your direct mission and charge and be able to handle that gracefully. Yes, well put. And that is among the skills and the toolkit you bring to this kind of uh, discussion, as well as the literal implementation of a partnership or alliance. And let me let me shift gears to another relationship management as a leader. In, in so many respects, you are an independent leader of mm-hmm. Teach for America, North Carolina. But of mm-hmm. course, you're also part of a national organization. I, I recall you and I talked about, I work for Special Olympics, North Carolina. And of course, we love the mission that Mrs. Shriver started years mm-hmm. earlier. But I wonder if you could speak to sometimes the challenges and opportunities of leading an organization, but also the relationship with a national office. Yeah. So I think it's important for folks to, you know, that are considering nonprofit leadership, especially if they're considering um, executive roles at a network model or, you know, a a federated model um, to understand the kind of two hats that you wear. Um, They're two hats on the same head, but they're nuanced. So as you mentioned, um, I lead the state, so I'm the chief executive of the state, but I'm also a senior leader that's part of a bigger enterprise. And so um, you have to switch uh, those radio stations, if you will, when you're leading in this type of model. And so if you're not prepared for that or able to calibrate that, that can be a challenge. Um, I don't want to say that I've worked in roles where I had to operate in that in this formalized way structurally. But what I can say is I probably had a little bit of exposure to it through working at a college that was a public institution. Um, I was a state government employee. One of the departments that I led was financial aid and we are very much connected to the federal government, state government, as far as you know, rules, regulations, things you have to always be mindful of. You could not just go it alone, if you will, and, right, and right. those types of partnerships. And so I don't wanna make it seem like it's the equivalent, but I had been used to Um, kind of operating in that kind of dual capacity from a very micro level. But it is an adjustment depending on the context you're coming from. Um, I would say I also, having a communications background, have also had a sensitivity to stakeholder management. So being mindful of the context outside of the one that I'm leading is something that by communication practice and training, I've always had. So it was an adjustment, but it wasn't as much of a challenge for me just because of those pieces um, that I had kind of been exposed to in different ways. Well, and I know it's cliche, but clearly you've managed well up laterally and down. Is that, again, if you're giving advice to someone who, as you noted, were accepting a job at a chapter organization within a larger affiliate? I mean, Communication is key, right? In every direction. Oh, absolutely. You have to communicate and you have to get to know the culture of your organization. Um, One of the benefits of working in this type of model is if I compare it to the higher education context, 
once you get into certain levels of administration, there's only one of you. So right, right. And in my college, there's not multiple people in the same job. So my peer network that I built over those 12 years were individuals that were in the same or similar capacities at other colleges and universities across the nation. So I still have that peer network and value that peer network. But when you're in these types of models, you have multiple other individuals that are serving in the same roles. Now, the scope of your responsibility and the scale of your affiliate may vary, um, as it would with any model that covered the United States. But you have more of a built in peer network versus your peer network is always outside of your organization. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And that again, is a good reminder of the, the kind of the dynamics there and elsewhere, really. Um, well, and it, it leads to another kind of leadership component I want to ask you about, which is fundraising, uh, your approach to fundraising. And similar to what we're just discussing, the you've got fundraising going on at different levels, I assume, at the affiliate mm-hmm. level, at the state level, and of course, at the national level. And I, I wonder, how do you juggle that? And how, do you, how do you approach your role as a fundraiser? Sure. So I was very fortunate to um, have exposure to fundraising prior to taking on this role as kind of the the lead or you know accountable for fundraising, if you will, alongside a development team through two arenas that I think are important for your audience to know. Um, service on nonprofit boards um, can be very helpful in getting exposure to fundraising. Um, fundraising principles. In some cases, certain nonprofit boards will avail fundraising and development training. Um, And so I've been very fortunate to be exposed to both um, in a nonprofit capacity. And sometimes we forget that when we're considering board service. Um, Then some of the leadership development programs I mentioned to you that I was able to do in, in the more senior years at my time at the college um, really exposed me for fundraising principles, being in a chief ex- executive seat. Um, and um, I had exposure to the fundraising office in the college capacity. So the combination of those things really laid a strong foundation for me coming into TFA. Um, however, I did inherit a very strong fundraising team. I am very thankful and blessed yeah, right. <laughs> for that. Give credit where credit is due, right? <laughs> yes. Um, I also will name that uh, the, I would say we have a very strong foundation of giving and folks that have contributed to the movement um, that has been stewarded well over the course of EDs that have preceded me in both parts of the state. Right. Um, and so that is also very helpful um, to come into, but then to then be able to expand um, as well. So uh, the approach to fundraising has really been focused on relationships, impact and communication yes. um, and really um, making sure that those that invest in us, are clear on what they're investing in and the impacts of that, um, but also getting to know uh, whether it's an individual donor, whether it's a foundation, uh, whatever those invest investments look like, um, making sure we're clear on, on what folks are concerned about or what they want to lend uh, their well-earned dollars towards and making sure that aligns with our priorities and they know where that alignment is um, and being clear about that. So. We've really elevated intentionally our communications efforts, um, not just because of 
making people aware of the merger, but also um, in response to, quite frankly, what some of our biggest supporters have said, like, hey, y'all are doing great work. You need to talk about it more. Right, um, and right. so we have really done that um, in a way that there are new awareness levels that even some of our long-term donors are having about the ROI of their long-term investments because we do have this kind of lifetime commitment model. So the the teacher that came to North Carolina to start with TFA that may now be a school principal um, who may be a superintendent, you know, that is a very long-term ROI. Yeah, I love that. And I love how you articulate that because that, of course, strengthens your fundraising, uh, literally and tactically. Um, and I also want to underline, Monique, that great advice you just gave that I often talk about in my coaching, the opportunity for strategic volunteering, including yeah. serving on boards. And yeah. you took it a step further, it sounds like, where you had opportunity to serve. You were even more intentional about getting some fundraising experience. Did, did I understand that correctly? In, yes. that, in those so, board roles? Yes. Yeah. So there were two board roles that I was able to uh, get experience. One of the organizations I know is, um, I'll share, that is present throughout the United States. Um, so I am a long-term member of the Junior League. Right, um, right. And so Junior League has a very large uh, operation in Charlotte. I served on the board of directors uh, for the Junior League. Uh, we also would do annual fundraising that allowed folks to get their individual experience. Um, we also had training and there's Junior Leagues across uh, the country. So uh, those women that are interested in that as well. But there's also um, a, a local nonprofit uh, that I actually think um, where I met uh, one of your dear colleagues and friends, uh, Miss Joanne Bean, oh, yes. uh, who I had the opportunity uh, to learn from. Um, I joined this board and uh, chose uh, to raise my hand to serve on the Capital Campaign Committee and Fund Development Committee. And so uh, I was chair of the Fund Development Committee and also was a member of the Capital Campaign Committee, uh, which gave me practical experience, but also uh, the opportunity to learn for folks that were brought in as experts to coach us um, as a board, Joanne being one of them, um, to really add uh, to my toolkit, not knowing at the time I would be sitting in this seat. <laughs> right. You never know when those tools might be necessary right down the road. <laughs> so good for you yes. for adding them to the kit even yes. before you had to fully implement them. But all right, well, let me move, move to another of your toolkit skills. Um, how do you, what's the key to engaging your board members? And And let me clarify something though because they are advisory board members i guess monique in other words they don't have fiduciary responsibilities is that correct yes they are advisory they don't have fiduciary they were involved in my hiring um they were not the the actual decision maker obviously the enterprise was right but i right. highly doubt if the board did not want to hire me if either board did not want to hire me that they would have proceeded <laughs> exactly uh, so exactly <laughs> So they did have influence there. And um, I am fortunate, it's another one of these um, serendipitous things, that they were the folks that were in place that were part of my hiring uh, and search process. And so um, also the chairs of the board, uh, both are extremely supportive. The board is very clear on their responsibility as advisory board members. Um, because as you mentioned, there is a difference. I've served on both types of boards between a fiduciary board and an advisory board um, and really are very clear about the impact they want to make um, in support of the movement and the growth. Um, and so 
I spent time in my part of those listening sessions and all those meetings. Part of the reason why it took me two months to meet with everybody virtually on staff, among other things, is, you know, I was balancing, you know, one-on-one meetings with every board member that I had. I had one-on-one meetings with just about everyone that I could get in touch with. We had a handful of board members that were on leave at the time, but I met with all the board members individually. Um, And it was important for me to have those touch points um, to not just build relationship, um, but to also hear from them, Um, even though they have been in support of my tenure and joining the organization. um, We also, on a pretty regular basis, I have um, a team of support. This is definitely not a one woman show. Um, My um, executive support, and communications uh, staff member, her name is Mandy, and my chief of staff are part of a board management team. Um, and we do a board newsletter uh, where one of the things I do in that board newsletter is a voicemail. So I'll tape a four minute voice note with just kind of my moosing. Wow. Um, what I'm feeling, what's happening, along with we'll share articles, uh, different things about highlights of our core members and alums. Uh, that we send on a monthly basis, and it's tailored to each board. So if you're in Charlotte, Piedmont Triad, you get the message that applies to that area, and the same for East North Carolina. We just launched that. Uh, that team has done a phenomenal job uh, with that, but I did have a vision of a monthly publication to them. I, I love that. I've underlined in my notes two things. One, of course, the your effort to meet individually, which mm-hmm. I think is a great takeaway for nonprofit leaders to think about uh, establishing some one-on-one relationship with your board members. And I, I am a big fan of the voice note myself and think that's <laughs> such a great idea because let's face it, our inboxes are full of lots yeah. of content. So you've added a new twist, which I'm certain is going to be well-received. Yes. Yeah, so we just rolled out the new format again. The team came up with it. Uh, they tell me the open rate is high. So I'm <laughs> that's a good sign. <laughs> I, I don't know the listen rate, but the open rate is high. So we, we plan on keeping uh, that up because as I mentioned, like these, you know, our jobs are big. There's a lot going on. And because it's not a fiduciary board, it's not like we are having some of the touch points that you would naturally have right, right. on a fiduciary board, but you've got to stay connected. But also the board members are busy too, you know, whether they are, you know, community volunteers, philanthropists in their own right, or folks that are, you know, working professionals, um, everyone has stuff to do. And so we still have to keep people in the know, but it also gives them nuggets to share. That's one of the pieces of feedback that we've gotten from the board by serving up, you know, the latest articles that may be out there or various things, you know, it allows them, if they're out and about talking about our work, to reference uh, something that could be a good talking point. Yeah, well, I think it's fantastic because you literally are delivering that those messages you want them to hear in your voice, not mm-hmm. that you couldn't write it down or put it sure. in a text and in a, a newsletter or e-newsletter. But I think that's fantastic. And and you said a monthly pace is your goal there, right? Yep. So, yes. Again, yes. And I, think, I wanted to do this when I first started, but right. that's one of the things I had to learn. I had a ton of ideas. <laughs> and I literally had to start a Google Doc, which is like ideal folder. <laughs> so I literally can't do them all right, all right away. You at least can't do them all at the same time. Um, but I had to have a place to capture them. So once we got to a spot, and I was able to hire staff and get people in place to do and support it, because I don't want to start something we can't sustain. Good point. Um, then I was able to to do it. But that's that's definitely against my orientation towards action nature. 
Well, I'm impressed. And again, I think it's another takeaway for our listeners to think about their communication uh, tactics to their board. And perhaps, you know, instead of just going back to the same old, same old, you know, the newsletter or sometimes the mailed packet to your board members, perhaps Mm -hmm. you can mix it up with an audio or even video, I suppose, Mm -hmm. someday, right, which would be a way to convey your voice uh, across the entire board of directors. Um, Fantastic. I got one more toolkit question for you, Monique. And it Um, is talent, hiring talent. Uh, Is there a couple of key characteristics you're looking for when you build your leadership team? I think it's important um, to know who you need to hire. Um, I think depending on the role itself. So um, when I came into this role, the new structure, if you will. So, you know, it was two separate affiliates, two separate structures. One of the foundational pieces that my uh, former boss I mentioned had set the stage for was cultivating and creating that new structure before I started, even though all of the hiring had not been completed yet, I was able to participate in that. Um, So it was a combination of folks that were already on board and there were new positions because of moving from a scale of a regional approach to some teams needed to then become statewide teams. Um, And so in considering folks to join the team, especially in a leadership capacity, um, I had to look at a couple of factors. Um, First, me getting clear on what the roles were and what was needed in the roles and the level of skill set in the roles. Uh, There were some roles that based on uh, what we had in front of us, I really needed to make sure that I had someone uh, that was ready for prime time, if you will, meaning someone who had um, done similar roles or had right. experience at that level that pretty much within once they were onboarded would kind of be off to the races. Uh, there were other roles that maybe the connectivity to the organization or the affinity link to the organization was a contextual factor that was important um, that I could hire someone that obviously was qualified for the role, but may need to grow into it a little bit more. Gotcha. Um, and so really needing to identify the areas where I could do that um, because we've all been in opportunities where we were um, either hired because of the track record of what we've done in the past or hired because of what we could grow into it and the potential. Um, so I'm always very mindful of that. I think that just comes from starting off as an intern <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, exactly. And so, so, and so the role clarity and then people in the right role. Um, second to that is also character. I think character um, is so important. I think capabilities and training, I don't want to underestimate that, but there's certain things as it relates to values, um, as it relates to alignment with the mission of Teach for America and our organizational values that are super important. Um, I would also say adaptive leadership, coming into a nonprofit uh, where the focus is in response and embedded in the community along with just what happens in a nonprofit and how nonprofits work, uh, the skill of adaptive leadership and a growth mindset is imperative. Um, And then lastly, I would say strong communication skills and coaching skills if they're a people manager, um, being able to develop people, but also being able to coach people and give constructive feedback um, when it's needed. We don't do folks uh, a service when we're not giving constructive feedback. Um, And over the course of my professional career um, before TFA, um, I have just seen examples in a variety of contexts where that 
um, tends to be a challenge over time or when a new leader comes and actually has to deliver the feedback that others should have delivered. It's a fantastic checklist, literally, of for a leader to consider. And I knew you would articulate it beautifully. Role clarity, seek character, look for adaptive leadership skills, a growth mindset. Speaking of a, a great book that uh, I, Carol Dweck is among my favorites, and I'd add that to anybody's uh, you know reading list. And, and the ability to coach, right? No matter almost at any level, right? There's that kind of feedback um, at any uh, any level of the organization. So, uh, Monique, that's fantastic. And, and of course maybe leads to my final question. Uh, this has been a wonderful set of wisdom for our listeners. Is there anything else? If someone were to come to you and say, all right, Monique, I'm I'm thinking about getting into nonprofit leadership, making a jump. Anything else you'd add to this list? Yeah, I would say um, a couple things. Um, always stay curious. I am a lifelong learner. I love to read. I am a self-proclaimed crowd uh, bookworm. I um, read quite extensively. I tend to read heavy on the nonprofit side. Um, the way my personality is wired, that's relaxing to me. Um, right, and right. <laughs> I would say the volunteering aspect that you mentioned, I think before you consider any leadership role or if you're already in leadership, thinking about how you can leverage the skills that you get paid for to contribute to your community in other ways um, is important. And the last thing I'll say is don't judge your journey by the chapter you may meet other leaders on. So folks that have known me along the course of my journey, which is why um, when we have had conversation, I wanted to share about some of the, the aspects of my journey over the course of the years, um, because a lot of times when people see you um, in a particular chapter, it can appear that there was not a lot of years to get there. So there was a lot of times of me uh, saying yes to the exposure opportunities or if a mentor or a sponsor said, hey, you know, you should serve on this project committee. It might have been extra work, but the experience I got to build upon helped me in the long run. Or if a book was suggested that I wrote down and read, it was a game changer. Um, and so really being willing to um, put those tools in the toolbox. When you need a wrench, you need a wrench. It may be two or three years before you need that wrench, but when you need it, you need it. It's fantastic. As throughout this conversation, lots of wonderful advice for nonprofit leaders thinking about the field or maybe advancing in the field. And for all this, Monique, I'm grateful. Uh, of course, this is an unfair question to a fellow bookworm, as you and I both <laughs> would proclaim. Can you suggest one book? Can you give us one recommendation among many that you've read? But as you know, I ask every guest, give us give a recommendation, if you would, please, for our sure. listeners. Okay, so I'm going to give one and then one I'm currently reading. So okay, I, a bonus. The bonus. <laughs> bonus book. Yeah. So I really, I know it might be something people have heard a lot, but Dare to Lead, Brene Brown. Yes, um, yes, I yes. A foundational book for leaders. Um, and then there's a book, um, The Prepared Leader that I'm currently reading recently came out uh, by the new uh, dean of the Wharton School um, and the first uh, Black woman to lead that school. It's not about that, but it's about her intersection working with corporate leaders and crisis and how every leader has to be in a constant state of preparing for varied levels of crisis. And so um, I've just started the book. Uh, they call it an airplane book. It's not a, a significantly long book. They say it's something that on a long flight, if you're a reader, <laughs> you, you can, can read. Right, um, right. So I look forward to finishing that. But do you think 
in the nonprofit space if we're proximate to the community, um, being prepared for that transition and, and responsiveness is just an acumen leaders have to have. That's fantastic. As you said earlier, right? Adaptive leadership is is a fundamental skill and something mm-hmm. you have to manage. And sounds like uh, well, both of those books uh, would strengthen that uh, that skill set. And so for all this, I'm again grateful, Monique, for this conversation. Where can people find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Folks can find me on LinkedIn. I'm trying to do a better job of sharing and um, have a plan in the new year to do a little bit more writing uh, there. They can follow me there. Um, They can also follow Teach for America North Carolina there on our company page if they're interested in specific work um, in North Carolina, or if they're interested in the work of Teach for America overall, there's a Teach for America page too. Fantastic. We'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, More reason to check out many of the resources Monique has shared with this listener group. Uh, So again, thank you so much for joining me on the path. Thank you. It's an honor for you to have me and to be asked. I hope this is helpful to, to someone out there. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Monique as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your professional journey and especially help you consider the leadership toolkit necessary to manage a strategic merger. As always, I hope you will share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you'll see the follow button linking to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this episode, click on the episodes button at the top of the page and you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.